John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Thank you. You may be seated. Barry Foster, a a pastor in Dublin, Ireland, parked his car on a steep slope close to the church. His Karen Terrier was lying on the rear seat and couldn't be seen by anyone outside the vehicle. Pastor Foster got out of his car, turned to lock the door with his usual parting command to his pet. Stay, he ordered loudly, to an apparently empty car. An elderly man passing by saw the pastor get out of the car and he heard the command. And rather perplexed, he said to the pastor, why don't you just try putting on the emergency brake? (laughs) To many people, prayer makes as much sense as shouting to a parked car. But to Christ followers, prayer is the most powerful and most reliant and, and reliable force in life and in the world today. Why is prayer a focal point of the Christian religion, a focal point of life in Christ? Well, for one thing, because God answers prayer. That's our testimony this morning. James talked about that. The fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. We not only look at a hospital room in Cincinnati, Ohio, for our evidence of answered prayer. Charles Wesley said, God will do nothing apart from prayer. We pray because believers are commanded to pray. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Paul said to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And then we pray because Jesus prayed. There are 23 references to his praying in the Gospels. Compared with 16 times he said to have preached, Forty-five times he said he is said to have taught. Are you aware that Jesus made only one reference to his prayer life? Remember where that was, when that was? 
when he said to to Peter, uh, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Our Lord is the supreme model of prayer. He prayed without ceasing during his earthly ministry. And now, as our great high priest gives himself to a ministry of prayer, he taught his disciples to pray. The summary of instruction is, of course, the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, the model prayer of Matthew 6, 9 through 13. More specifically, I think it's important that we take a moment to consider the occasions on which Jesus prayed. He prayed at the beginning of a momentous task. Dr. Luke records his prayer at his baptism, uh, which marked the ministry, uh, the beginning of his public ministry. What did Jesus pray for on that momentous occasion? Two things. He dedicated himself to the will of God. Hebrews 10.7 quotes him on that occasion. I am come to do your will, O God. And second, he prayed for divine enablement. Uh, A brother in our church some time ago was uh, given a much deserved and a very significant promotion at work. Soon afterwards, he called me one day and he said, Pastor, would you come by uh, the office and uh, pray for me in my new office and as I take on my new responsibility? It was a great joy, especially since it was a government office, <laughs> to, to go and to kneel there in prayer at his desk to pray for enablement and power and that the gospel would go, through, go forth through his life as he went about his daily work. Prayer is important in any new endeavor, any new, any new crossroads. It's important, I think, and interesting to note that Jesus prayed before meals. It can be assured and assumed that from the feeding of the 5,000 that it was his regular practice. He prayed all night before selecting the 12. And I can never say that without reminding you that Judas Iscariot was an answer to prayer. We might not expect that. And then he invoked God's help at the beginning of the day. He arose very early in the morning, the gospel says. And then he prayed in times of stress and suffering. Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. Three of those times were prayers. One at the beginning, toward the midway point, and at the end. Father, into your hands I commend my Spirit. Jesus was a man of prayer. John 17 comprises his longest recorded prayer. It takes about six minutes to, uh, to read it. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed. It's nearly midnight. Our Lord and the eleven have left the upper room where they have celebrated the Passover. Passing through the city wall and across the Kindred Valley to Gethsemane where he will be momentarily arrested. And he says to them, and the context of the passage begins in chapter 16 verse 33. These things have I spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer 
I have overcome the world. And Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. I remind you that our Lord did not go to the cross anxious or depressed. He went in victory. It is a victory prayer. He has three things upon his heart. Verses 1 through 5, he prays for his own needs and desire. 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples and their pressing needs. And in 20 through 26, he prays for you and all future believers. The three sections are like three concentric circles that build upon each other. A prayer for oneself is not always a selfish prayer, is it? Uh, This is no bless me, our four, and no more petition. Even if Jesus had concluded with verse 5, this would have been an others-focused conversation. He speaks the intimate titled Father three times in the prayer. He also says, Holy Father, Righteous Father, facing a demonic blast of rejection and cruel treatment culminating in in crucifixion. Nothing could shake his confidence in his relationship with God, his Father. It began in eternity past. He says at the close of verse 5, this relationship Uh, before the world was. So when unexpected events, adverse circumstances, and tragedy wash over your soul, reflect upon the relationship you have with your heavenly Father. Uh, God's grace, uh, somebody this week uh, called it uh, into crazy times. Do you know anything about crazy times? Uh, You start a business, you enroll in college, you make an investment, you make a major purchase, a promising relationship, and you prayed about it, and you had peace about it, and just like the manna in the wilderness, it stinks up the room. And you say, oh, Lord, Lord, have have I missed you? What's going on here? Jesus found confidence not only in the relationship with the Father, staring at the cross, But he found confidence and power in the Father's timing. Father, the hour is come. Five times in John, he says, the hour or my hour is not yet come. You remember the wedding reception at Cana uh, when things went terribly bad and the wine ran out. Uh, that was an incredible breach of social uh, propriety. It would be like having a wedding here in the sanctuary and then dismissing the wedding gifts. Gifts. Did you catch I said gifts? Uh, It would be like dismissing wedding guests by sending them to McDonald's um, Dutch treat. It's a terrible situation. And Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And he said, woman, a title of respect. Why do you share this concern with me? My hour is not yet come. He's not talking about 60 minutes on the clock. He's talking about the time when his 
person, his character, his identity, his mission would be revealed. My time's not come. The hour's not come. But it has now arrived. The drama of redemption begun in eternity past has reached its apex. Jesus lived every day in the awareness of a divine calendar. Do we do that? We all have those times when you're reminded that your times are not in your hands and there's a plan underway that's not your plan and there's a decree that's been established that you haven't written. But don't you agree with me that the rub comes is when we tend to acknowledge the Father's timing and providence when things work out. When a life's saved, a deal goes through, and you, know, you get the job, and somehow we don't praise so loudly when we almost get the job, we almost accept, get accepted into the program. Why don't we praise so loudly then? Jesus rejoiced in the Father's timing He knew from eternity past the direction the incarnation would take him. And he teaches us to look at ultimate things. His focus is not upon the crisis or the conflict of the next 12 hours. It is the big picture. Father, the hour has come. Looking at ultimate things means two things. First... There's a burning passion that the Father would be glorified through events about to crash upon him. That word glorify, did you notice it in the verses we read? Glorify your son. It's echoed through the entire prayer. You find glory or glorified five times in five verses. It means to give weight to, to give appropriate attention to. To reveal hidden riches. A couple of years ago, we were on family vacation, and Mary ventured to the beach with me one morning before daylight to make some pictures. Uh, We're standing there in the eerie darkness, hearing the lapping of the waves upon the beach, and uh, thinking that a sea monster might lunge at us at any moment or some intruder would come from some direction. It really was quite eerie. And we were sort of standing there waiting, and she's feeling pretty uncomfortable. And she says to me, do you think it'll come up? And I said, it has for 6,000 years. I suspect it will. <laughs> and I'm thinking, will it come up? And sure enough, second after second, the sun began to rise out of the sea, out of the ocean. And this is what I got. The brilliance of the sun pulverized the darkness, exposing the magnificence of God's creation. And you can only get photos like these when you stand in the darkness. That's what Jesus did. From the human viewpoint, Calvary was a revolting display of man's sin. But from the divine perspective, the cross exposed and magnified the grace and the weightiness of who God is and what he was doing through the cross. It manifested his glory. 
The Son glorified the Father by revealing in this act the sovereignty of God over evil, the compassion of God for men, and the finality of redemption for believers. Let me tell you what I am learning and learning and learning. When peace and joy come, it's when you understand that it is about you. It is. The Father knows that. But when you know in your soul that ultimately it's about his glory. That was Jesus' concern. It's when you pray as he did a few minutes from now in Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus didn't want to suffer. He was no stoic. He was no robot. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's a prayer for the Father's glory. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. Something so routine. The ultimate question is, how can I glorify God in this? But there's a second question that Jesus considered facing the cross. How can I, how can I show others the presence of eternal life? Now, eternal life is the big idea of this prayer. John the Evangelist used it about 17 times. Eternal life is not simply endless existence. Every person in this room will exist somewhere forever. But the question is, in my everlasting life, what will be the quality of my life? Now, from a human perspective, each of us receives the gift of eternal life, and we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior. From the Father's viewpoint, those who receive Christ have already been given to the, to, through the Son, or to the Son through divine election. Beginning in verse 2, five times Jesus refers to his own as though as those the Father gave him. Now, both divine election, a calling to salvation, and personal responsibility to trust Christ are true. Both are true. Don't let your ball get lost in the weeds on divine election. The question is not, well, brother, do you believe in election? It's a Bible term. Paul talks about it in Romans and in Ephesians. If you believe the Bible, you believe in election. The question is, is what does the Bible teach about election, right? One not-so-informed mountaineer said, election means God has a vote, the devil has a vote, and I have the deciding vote. (laughs) Not quite. So what does the Scripture teach? Both appear together in one verse. John six thirty seven. All the Father gives me shall come to me. That's a divine calling. In fact, Jesus said that without that calling, no one would come. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That is personal responsibility. Both are true. 
And in our discussion and all the disagreements about these two aspects of salvation, here is the point that we dare not miss, that Jesus drives home in the lives of the disciples. If you know Jesus Christ genuinely as your personal Savior, you are elect. Could I have one amen there? Call me, I can depend on you, amen? Yeah. God wants you to have the assurance of salvation. Election means you're going to make it home victoriously. You know, just dragging on through some of the songs we sing here in the mountains. You know, if anybody makes it, surely I will. You know, have you heard all that stuff? You know, it's just like we're going to, you know, you're going to get through the gate of heaven and collapse in the road, you know. No, we will arrive victorious as he is victorious. So stop striving and start trusting. Stop striving and start, and start praising. Stop striving and start serving. He says one more thing in, in verse 12. I have kept them. Not one has been lost except the son of perdition. We'll talk about him next week. You should be feeling very, very secure in Christ right now. He uses a specific term in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Underscore it. It's used through the Greek Old Testament, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, in passages like uh, Matthew one twenty-five to speak of the physical intimate relationship between husband and wife. Uh, remember Genesis 4.1? And Adam knew his wife Eve. That was more like, hey, I know her. <laughs> no. This is the most intimate relationships known on planet Earth. That they may know Understanding the gospel intellectually does not save anyone, right? I know a Christian school where the highest grade in Bible given to a graduating, graduating senior was given to a Hindu student. Oh, he understood. He understood better than anybody in the class. He could recite back the gospel like this. But he had not placed his trust, his personal faith in Jesus Christ, his personal Savior. You need to know that this word know is also a present tense verb. That they may know, know, know. Saving faith results in living contact with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in a changed life. If you do not have a life that is being conformed to the principles of Scripture, you should question whether or not you're truly a believer. Knowing God through Christ is not just future, it's present. It's a growing personal relationship. Eternal life is not a dot on a page. It's a continuous series of dots that run into the future until you stand face to face with him. An intimate, intimate, growing, progressing. He'll say concerning the disciples in the next verses, sanctify them through your truth, he will say. Incidentally, Harvard University was uh, founded on verse 3. <laughs> and this is eternal life that they may know you. 
the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We've come a ways since the founding of Harvard University. Some of you recognize the name B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Brecken. Now, this will be on the test. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Dr. Warfield was a world-renowned theologian at the turn of the 20th century. He was a biblical fundamentalist who was at the forefront of the liberal fundamentalist controversy that was so important during his day. He taught at Princeton Seminary for 34 years until his death in 1921. And students read his books today. When Warfield was 25 years old in 1876, he, or 18, yes, 1876, he married Annie Kincaid. They traveled to Germany for their honeymoon. And during an intense thunderstorm, Lightning struck Annie and permanently paralyzed her. Warfield cared for his wife for 39 years until her death in 1915. Because of her needs, her husband seldom left home for more than two hours at a time. He did that through 39 years of marriage and 34 years of teaching at Princeton Seminary. So what does this eminent theologian with shattered dreams and her disabled wife say about Romans 8.28 in his own words? The fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need and can only groan in unformed longings, he is the author. Uh, he is the author in us of these very longings. And he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. He will so govern all things that we will reap only good from all that befalls us. When Jesus thought of his own needs and his own desires, he prayed for the glory of God and the manifestation of eternal life to those who would look on the cross. I suggest to you, friends, that's a great prayer for us to pray as well. The glory of God, the manifestation of eternal life. I want you to place something in the box. Would you do that? You have a box on your listening guide. What would you place in the box? Jesus placed in the box rejection, emotional, spiritual, physical, anguish, concern for the disciples, concern for us. Would you put something in the box? Some challenge, some frustration, 
a bewildering circumstance, maybe your own thoughts, your own flaws, pride, anger, lust, who knows, some besetting sin, some unbelief. What would you put in the box? Now, let's surrender it, maybe for the umpteen times. I don't know what that means to you, the umpteenth time. But I do know what it means. In surrender, Jesus discovered power to face the cross victoriously and confidently. So the two thoughts we're leaving with this morning is first, the glory of God with what's in the box. And how may I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, manifest eternal life to those around me? Those are the questions.